Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a man who took this Galaxy team on his back and led it out of the abyss to the brink of the playoffs, was nowhere to be found. Following the carnage on the field in which he failed to score, Zlatan then fled into the Hollywood night without a word and left his teammates to face the music. That is Weak Sauce. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about Zlatan, the good and the bad. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment, and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy? I am good. Uh, this jersey might not age well. This is a Grameo jersey. They host River Plate. We're taping this on a Tuesday. That game is tonight, the uh, second leg of the Copa Libertadores semifinals. They do have a 1-0 aggregate lead. They won in Argentina last week. But I have a bad feeling about this game. Uh, they're shorthanded again. They were shorthanded last week and somehow pulled off this amazing result. But I think it's playing with fire to try to do it again. So I'm smelling a River Plate comeback here, which is good news for the neutrals who are rooting for a Boca River final. We Boca, talked about that. Very yeah. well placed to advance in the other semifinal against Palmeiras. They won the first leg 2-0. So I'll be watching that game tonight. By the time you hear this podcast, we'll know which way it's gone. Well, notwithstanding your consternation of your uh, attire selection for today, you also came in here all fired up about the old uh, Twitter machine. Uh, we both, and as we all do, not all, everybody, but most people do uh, play with this machine. I look at it like a video game. I love it. I recognize that it has its negative parts um, and dark parts, if you will. You were all fired up, and we informed you, uh, and usually I get informed about the technical aspect of a lot of this stuff. We informed you that there is this thing that you can do called muting. Because you were all worried about unfollowing different people and if they see you and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we informed you that there is this muting thing. It's, it is wonderful if you do it. I, don't, I have never blocked anybody. Uh, and I don't think I've ever muted anybody. But that's just me. You know, I'm a glutton for punishment. You, though, are now going to be using this muting thing going forward. And why? Yes. You, don't, you don't have to tell us who it is or anything like that. I'm just saying, what, why is this person or people, why are they bothering you? Well, it's one guy who recently <laughs> asked me to follow him. And uh, I did. And listen, he's a nice enough guy, but I just Well, you don't know if he's a nice enough guy. It's Twitter. You've never met this person, right? That's true. But well, his... keep that in, you need to understand that, Mossy. People are not necessarily who they say they are. <laughs> and if you base everything on what they say in tweets, you could be in for a, a disappointment. Well, any event, his tweets just annoy me. They just rub me the wrong way. And There's a lot uh, of that on I Twitter. I want to unfollow him, but I don't want him to see that I unfollowed him. So uh, our producer, Alex Dowd, informed me that I can mute him, and that way I won't see his tweets, but I'll still technically be following him. So I think we've hit on a good solution here to this uh, problem. I, I, I think that this is, you're going to have a, uh, a mute, uh, a muting uh orgy, if you will, uh, as the day continues with different people <laughs> now that you've discovered this thing. All right. Well, listen, do what you have to do in order to make your life uh, good. And if if Twitter helps you in your life as, as it does for... Look, I, I use it for uh, for information. It's incredible, the speed and obviously the amount of information that comes in. As I said, I recognize that uh, if you're going to go on Twitter, especially uh, if you're someone like myself or, or you or others that are going to have opinions on a daily basis... Um, there's going to be plenty of people that uh, that don't like you. But as I said before, if your whole goal in life is to please everybody, you probably shouldn't be on on, on Twitter. And you definitely shouldn't be involved in the stuff that uh, that we do. All right, speaking of that stuff, are you ready to go? Let's get this show on the road. Let's Light do this it. candle. All right. As always, we start the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. 
Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective, and it goes a little something like this. The Los Angeles Galaxy choked. It's okay. It's not a dirty word, but there's no other word for it. All the Galaxy needed to do was beat the lowly Houston Dynamo to get into the MLS playoffs. The Galaxy was playing at home. The Galaxy went up 2-0. The Galaxy then let Houston score three unanswered goals in a 2-3 loss. It was an epic collapse and an embarrassing ending for a team that ultimately proved to be overpaid, overrated, and overwhelmed. But Zlatan Ibrahimovic, a man who took this Galaxy team on his back and led it out of the abyss to the brink of the playoffs, was nowhere to be found. Following the carnage on the field in which he failed to score, Zlatan then fled into the Hollywood night without a word and left his teammates to face the music in the form of the media. That is weak sauce. Now I get it. It's raw, it's emotional, it's personal. Zlatan isn't used to losing. It should also be noted that the Dos Santos brothers also bailed immediately after the game. But Zlatan, you're the real star, as you so often tell us. You've consistently used the media to build your brand fueled by testosterone, ego, and beautiful arrogance. You've cultivated a larger-than-life persona through the media, complete with irresistible quotes regarding your prowess as a player and man. But it's easy to be big and bold when things are going well. The biggest stars also do it when things don't go well. You're Zlatan. You're not just another player. And this is the LA Galaxy. It's not just another team. You had a wonderful year, but you dropped the ball on this. Because gods don't run and hide, lions don't run and hide, and leaders don't run and hide. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my State of the Union for this week. All right, Mossy, uh, number one, did you see the game? And number two, how did you feel about the game? And Zlatan, as I mentioned, not facing the uh, media after the game. I did watch the game. I was shocked by the outcome. Uh, and I completely agree with you. That was very weak by Zlatan. Uh, and now the question becomes, has he played his last game for the Galaxy? Because there are a lot of rumors about a return to Europe. He more or less ruled out Manchester United, but uh, Real Madrid and AC Milan have both been linked. Uh, it's such a shame because, as you mentioned, he had a great season, but it was kind of tainted at the end. I, I now come away with it with sort of a bad taste in my mouth. Do you agree? Look, I, I want to be very clear. I, I love Zlatan. Uh, he, he has brought something to this team, obviously, but also to this league, and he is must-see for a lot of the things that I mentioned. But I, I tell you what, this offseason for the brain trust over there, and it starts with Chris Klein, uh, our colleague uh, at times, Jovan Karofsky, and Peter Vianas, they got, they got a lot to deal with because we know that Zlatan came over. He wasn't a designated player. He played for, relative to what Zlatan could command, very little money. And now he's had a chance to see what the league is. And he's proven that he is worth every penny and probably four or five times those pennies that you are paying. And now they have to figure it out because they already have three designated players in uh, uh, Alessandrini and the two Dos Santoses. So the galaxy is in a bind here. Uh, and not, Zlatan's a big part of it, but there's also other parts of it. And as I said, for the amount of money that they've spent and their return is, is not good. So Chris Klein's got to figure this out. But if you're Zlatan right now, you say, I need to be paid what Dos Santos is making. I need to be paid what Josie's making or what uh, Giovinco's making or any of these other guys. And if you look at his production, notstanding the fact that in that last game, he didn't score goals. And that's a, that's, that's a problem. He had opportunity to bring him to the playoffs. But 
you got to feel that he's worth it. And I think right now it's incumbent on the Galaxy, given what he did, to bring him back because he's been so good. Do you think that he comes back next year? I don't know. As you mentioned, it's a very uh, tricky situation. Now, I had an interesting uh, conversation at Fox uh, this past weekend. This was before the Galaxy game when we all thought they were going to win and make the playoffs. And one of our colleagues, I won't mention his name, uh, was making this point that, you know, everybody's excited about these young South Americans, but there's still something to be said about signing established world-class players like Rooney and Zlatan. And do you feel like there's two camps developing in MLS in terms of the philosophy of how to do things? And do you find that to be an interesting subplot? No, it's it's just it's the normal balance because the rub is the, the ideal is you get a huge name, you're gonna pay for it, but you want them to perform on the field. Sometimes that happens and in, in, in equal measures, and sometimes it, it it doesn't. But you're absolutely right because this is a business, and you are trying to sell this product on a on a weekly basis in terms of the tickets that you're selling to people coming from a business perspective in terms of the people that are tuning in to watch and they want to see something. And I've told you before, it doesn't interest me to see development. It doesn't interest me to see all young players. I don't get excited about that. And I know I'm not, I'm, I, that's, that's not something that everybody shares. There are people that just go gaga over it, but not enough people. And so I, I still think that that part is going to happen where you sign big names. And there are other teams that can kind of get away with it. But this is the Los Angeles Galaxy. And now it, it gets down to the, all these things we talk about, identity and personality and character and club ethos and all these different things. And what is the Galaxy going to be going forward? In the same way we talked about last week, Real Madrid. And look, I, I know that they are, they are not on equal footing. But when it comes to the, to, to the American and North American landscape, this is the Los Angeles Galaxy. They have built themselves on big names. They have built themselves on stars. If you go against that, does it, you, may, you may actually win more games, but does it hurt your business to go against that? I, I don't know. I, I would be disappointed because I think that's what the Galaxy has been. And to betray that to a certain extent, it would rub me the wrong way. How would you feel if Zlatan went on loan with a European club and then came back and missed the start of the MLS season but but did return to the Galaxy eventually? Is MLS kind of past that of allowing yeah. players to do that? I think it's past it. And I, and I really respect and admire the way that Wayne Rooney has handled it. He has said he's not going to go on loan, but he made a point of saying, this is where I live, this is where I play, this is who's paying me. And I think he framed it perfectly in his response. And Wayne Rooney could go on loan. There's plenty of teams out in the world that would take a Wayne Rooney. But I I do think it diminishes the player. It diminishes the club when, when, when teams do that. And I do think that we are far enough along where we don't need to do that. The shame of it is, from a neutral's perspective, is LAFC dropped down to the third yeah. seed, so uh, we would have gotten the matchup we all wanted, LAFC against the Galaxy. Instead, it's LAFC against Real Salt Lake, Dallas-Portland, the other Western Conference series, and then in the East, you've got NYCFC-Philadelphia and DC-Columbus. What were your overall takeaways from Decision Day, and what are your thoughts heading into the postseason? I thought I was disappointed in Atlanta, but I was incredibly excited for the Red Bulls uh, that we know had a coaching change midseason. I've uh, won now three Supporters Shield in the last six, I think. And I'm happy for Jesse Marsh, who's no longer there because his footprint or his fingerprints are all over this team. And then Chris Armas, it's not easy to come in. And he has taken this team and he has helped make them better. So they should be celebrated with this caveat. Nobody cares about the Supporters Shield. 
they, they'll we'll celebrate it and we'll talk about it. And yes, it is a trophy that you win, but it's about MLS Cup. Right or wrong, fair, unfair, it is about MLS Cup. And, and, and by the way, nobody understands this more than the New York Red Bulls. They celebrate it because it is an accomplishment, but they know they have to win uh, MLS Cup. And this is why year in and year out, we have teams that go from nothing and kind of squeak into the playoffs and then win MLS Cup. And, and that's great. And you will have the confetti and you will have that moment and you will be celebrated. But the real celebration and the real applause and kudos, I reserve for teams that are able to take what they do in the regular season, win a Supporters' Shield, and then go on. And it's very rare. Uh, it's, what, seven out of the 22? or I, I, I can't remember the number. But it's, it's, very, it's minimal in terms of the teams that are able to do that. So I will give you much more credit and much more praise if you are able to win Supporters' Shield and then parlay that into an MLS Cup. That is the, the ultimate sweet, st- sweet spot, and that is the ultimate paradise. Let me finish it with this, uh, going back to what I talked about and just bringing it back full circle to, to Zlatan. And while, this, well, you know, while I'm, I'm certainly being critical and negative of it, do you feel, and this applies to all sports, probably in all athletes, do you feel that athletes have a responsibility to address the media, that athletes have a responsibility that goes beyond the 90 minutes that they play on the game, uh, in, on the field? Certainly, if they do so after wins, you know, if, if, if they're athletes that, that love kind of celebrating themselves when things are going well and using the media as a flat platform to do that, then you got to show your face when things go bad. So it's that uh, contradiction there. If you're just a guy that's quiet and doesn't like talking to the media in general, there's still a debate to be had there, whether you, you, that's part of the job, but it's, it's at least easier to understand. But if you're a guy that's, you know, front and center when things are going well, but, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and had the galaxy one, (laughs) <laughs> you better you better believe that Zlatan's going to be front and center and talking about, I promised you to, I brought it to you, you're welcome. But obviously uh, they didn't. And, that's, and I do believe that athletes have a responsibility because the power of the media and the marketing power of that, of that side and of that arm is huge. And when you are, it goes back to talking about buying these big star players. Part of the value that comes with these players is the ability to get on the talk shows, the ability to become viral when they do th- something. As we said before, that, that clip that became viral for Rooney, uh, where he slide tackled and hit it to Luciano Costa. Any, any other player or, or just some player that it was the fifth round pick or whatever does that? Nobody's talking about it. It doesn't become viral. That, there's a value to that. But So your value is already what you are, what, what has nothing to do with your 90 minutes on the field. The other part of it is, yeah, talking and getting up there and doing that kind of stuff. Because every time that you get in front of a camera, every time you get in front of, in front of a microphone, you have the ability to send a message to so many more people than 99% of the other players in your locker room. And you are paying for that. That's why you are bringing some of these players in. It's not just about how well you kick the soccer ball. And so to say that that is not my job, Okay, if that is made very, very clear ahead of time, then blanket it, and everybody knows going in, he or she does not do interviews. That's just the way that it is. I, I won't be happy of it, but at least I can respect the fact that that is how they roll from start to finish. But I would, if, if, if I was in charge of a team, I would have a second look and think really, really hard about bringing somebody that doesn't view interaction with the media as part of his or her job. I don't know. That's that, that's just me. Are there any famous people that uh, refuse to talk to the media through their careers? 
Barry Sanders? Was he one of them? I can't remember. Uh, famous one in baseball was Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray. Uh, and actually had a tough time getting in the Hall of Fame as a result because it's, you know, it's sports writers that, that vote on that and uh, they resented the fact that yeah. he was bad I mean, to There's the going to be vin, you know, a vindictive part of, uh, of sports people. I mean, Clint Dempsey famously is like that, right? He, uh, I mean, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. He, he does not. And it's, it, it's irritating. And I think there's also an element of they, they enjoy the irritation that they inflict with it. There's some that are that just don't feel comfortable doing with it. I, you know, I I can understand. Remember that famous scene in The Right Stuff, uh, where he tells his wife, "You don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to talk to the president or anything like that." Anyway, I I, I digress. It's an old <laughs> movie. You should go check it out. But you know, the fact is that there's some people that are just very uncomfortable with doing it, and and I get it. Uh, but that's different than just saying. It is beneath me. I don't need to deal with them, and I don't think that it's part of my job. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. Okay, it's time. That time each week when my good friend Mossy makes the case. He talks about something that is riling him up. What do we got this week, Mossy? My case is that Real Madrid's latest coaching change on the heels of a 5-1 loss to Barcelona is yet again illustrating the difference between these two clubs. We're taping this on a Tuesday. Julian Lopetegui is out. He's been replaced by Santiago Salari on an interim basis. This after a deal for Antonio Conti apparently fell through at the last minute. But what really struck me in the last few days is in reading the list of candidates that Real Madrid are considering, it is all over the place. You have attack-minded coaches, defensive-minded coaches, players' coaches, disciplinarians, basically any big name that's out there. And that's sort of emblematic of how this club has operated under Florentino Perez. If you look back at the last 10 years or so, they've gone from Manuel Pellegrini to Jose Mourinho, to Carlo Ancelotti, to Rafa Benitez, to Zinedine Zidane, Lopetegui, and now almost Antonio Conti. And you contrast that with Barcelona, who I know we poo-poo a lot of this masculine club stuff, but one thing I do think is real is it's been 30 years since Johan Cruyff took over as manager in 1988. He coached them for eight years. Uh, and when he left, his greatest legacy is he left behind a model, an idea, a philosophy of how to play the game, a sense of when we're doing things right, this is what it's supposed to look like. And it's something that when in doubt, they can always fall back on. It shapes all their coaching searches. They seek out managers with a certain profile who fit a certain system. Doesn't always have to be a big name. Pep was not a sexy hire at the time. When he left, they plugged in his assistant, Tito Villanova. Then it was Tata Martino, then Luis Enrique, now Ernesto Valverde. These are not like big name sexy hires, but they fit the system and they knew that they were going to play a certain style. And listen, I know Real Madrid have had loads of success, but I do feel like Barcelona's success has come in large part because of how they operate. And Real Madrid's success has come in large degree in spite of how Florentino Perez operates. I much prefer the Barcelona way, and I think that difference was once again on display uh, the last few days. Okay. If there is a drinking game, drink, because you said system. And that's where I want to start. So what is the system then for Barcelona? It is sort of geared around this sort of, uh, you have to be willing to play sort of a tiki-taki-ish kind of possession approach. Which uh, means what? Keeping the ball at all costs and short passing? Yeah, That's I the think system. to some degree. That's yeah. the system. Okay. So uh, your, your premise was they have hired people that either are able to or buy into or probably both the concept of keeping the ball at all costs and playing short passes rather than long passes, really. Yeah, I mean, like a, if a Jose Mourinho was out there, and I know Jose Mourinho's reputation now has taken a massive hit, but it, but at one point in his career, if, if he was out there, um, 
you know, and he was clearly the, the, the most accomplished, biggest name out there. I don't think a Barcelona would hire him because I think they would feel like he doesn't fit. Okay. While Real Madrid, this seems to go for whatever the biggest name is that's out there. Okay. So uh, this whole concept of fitting. Right. Would Zinedine Zidane fit? Barcelona? Yeah. Yeah, I think he How showed that possible? during his time he at Real. Grow up in it. He's not part of it. He's not uh, understanding of the the history and the culture and the system and the ethos and all that kind of stuff. How is that possible? Mostly? Because certain coaches are a bit more adaptable and they kind of show themselves to be chameleons and they could sort of exist in any. While others have kind of a certain way of doing he, things that's a little bit more set. Because he won and he was successful for no other reason. Stop. Come on. No, because I just gave you Mourinho's example. Mourinho's had huge success, but I, I wouldn't want him coaching Barcelona. I think you that would be a very awkward Bar- fit. Bar- you wouldn't want him coaching, coaching Barcelona now no, because no. of the situation. Even at his peak. Okay. All right. All it's right. interesting, though. My Lossie uh, makes the case last week was all about Real Madrid's transfer policy and right. their shifting priorities, the fact that they're not signing stars because they need to renovate their stadium. The fans and media certainly feel like that's the issue there. And so Florentino Perez is getting a lot more blame than Lopetegui. Lopetegui is being viewed as a victim and a guy that was set up to fail. And Florentino Perez is very sensitive to that, which is why in the statement he put out announcing Lopetegui's departure, he went out of his way to talk up how great the squad is. We have eight players that were just nominated for the Ballon d'Or more than any other club. And it's unacceptable that a club with uh, this much quality could be getting these results. And so it was interesting to see him kind of push back on, the, on what we talked about last week. So there's that whole little subplot going on here as well. I did not watch a lot of Barcelona under Cruyff. If I were to watch the Barcelona teams under Cruyff uh, and mirror it or compare and contrast it with the, not the present day, but certainly the last uh, 15 years of what we have come to know as Barcelona. And we all recognize it was fueled by this wonderful generation that was nurtured and fostered and, and brought up. I, I would be able to tell, not the difference, I would be able to see the similarities. Yeah. Actually, one of my favorite parts of that Manchester City documentary that just dropped was they showed like a pep practice with Manchester City, and then they juxtapose it with a clip of a Barcelona practice in the early 90s under Cruyff with Pep as one of the players and them doing like the exact same drills and passing drills and Cruyff started yelling the same things at the players that Pep was yelling all those years later. So there is a, a, a sort of philosophy there. Obviously, it's, as the game evolves, you have to tweak things and adjust, but th- there is sort of a general, I think, idea that you could draw a straight line there. What's the idea? What's the general idea? No, what I just said. You know, they, 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 they we've both... Come to, we, so we, we, we've spent all this time and it really comes down to just keep the ball... Uh, what's and, the name of the documentary that's going to take the ball, pass the ball? Isn't there a Barcelona documentary that's about to come out? It's interesting to bring it back to Real Madrid. There's sort of this yin-yang they always go through between like players, coaches, and disciplinarians. And all the Champions League titles they've won under Florentino have come with more laid-back players, coaches, Del Bosque, Ancelotti, Zidane. And yet he often convinces himself the issue there is that they need more of a disciplinarian to whip the players in shape. And so... His initial instinct here was to hire Antonio Conti. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there was a real backlash in the dressing room. Guys like Sergio Ramos and Marcelo said, we don't want Conti. And also there was an issue from the Conti end of it because he wasn't happy with the deal they were offering. He wanted more years, more control. And so it's interesting how this whole thing fell apart. And we'll see when they end up getting. There's talk about Roberto Martinez, your former sure. television colleague. Sure. But it's interesting that his initial instinct, again, was to go down the disciplinarian route and bring in a guy like Antonio Conti to... 
Yeah, but isn't that a, isn't that normal? Because when you have somebody that's more laid back right. and lets them do it, then it, it, it runs its course, and then the inmates right. are on the asylum, and then somebody says, "Oh, we gotta we gotta put it's that like balance ping pong. back." You yeah, go back you, and you forth. Go back and forth. So I think that's I think that's normal. Anytime you have somebody that comes in and is quote unquote laid back in terms of the way they deal, and and really, how does that manifest? Well, it manifests in maybe at times less coaching. Uh, it manifests in. Uh, you get to, by, by the way, this happened with someone like Bruce Arena who came in and was famous for coming in and having success because he, he pulled back and let the guys go out and, and eat and there wasn't the strict dress code or there wasn't, it was your men, you figured out, you're mature uh, and I'm going to trust you. Give an inch and players will take a mile. Believe me, I've, I, I've been there. And so there does have to be, you know, oftentimes I talk about kids that, they they want structure ultimately. They might scream and yell, but they ultimately want structure, and they want people that are there to help them follow a day to day structure. Well, that's it's the same when you're dealing with with teams. At, at a certain point, you want some direction, and you, at a certain point, you want some organization, and maybe at a certain point, you want some authoritarian type of figure to get in there. But if if what we're hearing is true, that locker room holds great sway in terms of who's coming in. Yeah, there was a college football player years ago who had like a laid back coach and he famously said, uh, he treats us like men, he lets us wear earrings. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I think that if Conti doesn't go there, the two big losers would be Chelsea because Conti going there was going to essentially rule out the Hazard thing. And also Gennaro Gattuso, the AC Milan manager, because there's been a lot of rumors about Conti going there. He's in big trouble and he would have loved to have seen Conti snapped up by someone else. Right. So now he's still lurking. Uh, but I'll tell you, Zinedine Zidane, does that guy come out smelling like roses? It sounds like he's he picked just... the perfect time to get out. Actually, there have been reports in the last 24 hours that Real Madrid's players want Florentino Perez to try to convince Zidane to come back, but I don't think that's happening. But, boy, he looks... Uh... <laughs> he looks great. It's a, life is about timing, my friend. And uh, Zinedine Zidane, on and off the field, uh, someone who has had impeccable timing. Yeah. And let me let me end on this. Let me say something about Lopetegui, who uh, has been vilified here. A lot of people think he got what he deserved because of what happened in the summer. First of all, it sounds like now you read he was like the fifth choice this summer that when Zidane left, they sounded out like everybody from Klopp to Pochettino to Allegri and they all said no. And so they ended up on Lopetegui. I'm going to defend him a little bit. It sounds like he didn't want to announce anything until after the World Cup, and it's Real Madrid that insisted on announcing it before. And the, the reason it is very revealing. Remember, Spain were riding high going into the World Cup, unbeaten in 20, one of the favorites to win it. And evidently, Florentino Perez was worried that if they didn't do well in the World Cup, it was going to take some of the shine off that hire. He wanted to capitalize on when Lopetegui's stock was very high and announce it then because that guy is very concerned about optics and splashy headlines. And so that, that to me, is revealing about how his mind works. And I do think Lopetegui is a good manager that's going to end up somewhere and land on his feet because he showed it again this weekend, actually. Real Madrid, awful first half, down 2-0 at the break, and then he made a very good substitution, taking off Varane and bringing on Lucas Vazquez, changed the formation. And for a lot of that second half, Real Madrid battered Barcelona. They got it to 2-1. They then had loads of chances to tie the game up. They hit the post. And then Barcelona got this third goal completely against the run of play, and then they tacked on too late and ended up 5 one looking terrible and of course you had to fire him off that result but I'm telling you if you watch that game there was a point there where you thought Lopetegui is going to come out smelling like roses here he made a great change at halftime halftime adjustment that completely turned that game around so I, I think there's a good coach in there he's just obviously made some regrettable career decisions here in the last few months but uh, I'm telling you some some smart club is going to snap him up because he is a good manager 
Well, Mossy, we'll finish it with this. Uh, as we know, uh, it has nothing to do with system. It has nothing to do with philosophy of play. It has nothing to do with how much money you're paying. It has nothing to do with the names or who you're married to or what magazine covers you're on. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is the scoreboard. Five to one was the final, right? And adios. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Yes, it's time for Ask Alexi, the portion of the show where we answer your questions, comments, concerns uh, when you have used that Ask Alexi hashtag. And please do that uh, on Twitter and Facebook and all the different platforms out there. All right, Mossy, what are the people asking this week? All right, first up, at beers underscore Jason. How important is the Olympics for young players? Is it better to be a sub for the senior team than a starter for the Olympic squad? It is better to be a starter for the Olympic squad because... It doesn't exactly replicate it, but it's the closest thing that you can do to replicating a qualification process. Obviously, well, first off, being on the team, the construction of that team, then a qualification process in your own region, and then going to a uh, international tournament uh, that is the best of the world and going through a tournament type of situation. I think that, and, and let's, let's, let me, in general, I think it's very, very important. And I think you're better off being a starter on your Olympic team than a sub on the national team. Uh, when it comes to the U.S. men's national team, that's why I've said time and time again, I think that this upcoming uh, Olympic team is crucial. I would love to have whoever is named the U.S. men's national team head coach to also coach the Olympic team. That's been done in the past in different places. I don't think that's going to happen. Having spoken to Ernie Stewart, I don't think that that's something that they are considering for a number of different reasons and some legitimate reasons. I think that the core of, and in particular at this point where we were at this this seminal moment and, and things changing so much and a, a reboot, if you will, I think the core of the 22 World Cup team, and more importantly, not even more importantly, but certainly the 2026 team is going to come from this Olympic team. The problem continues to be that releasing the players and getting release for uh, the event is tricky. And that's where Ernie Stewart comes in. He is going to earn his money by making sure that he establishes relationships, calls in chips, does all that kind of stuff uh, to make sure that the U.S. can get this incredible wealth of young talent together as much as possible to the qualification process and then obviously into the Olympics, which, by the way, you can then take three overage players to. And once again, that core of that team that is going to go through a process that I think is going to be beneficial for 2022 and 2026. So that's a long way of saying, yes, I think the Olympic team is hugely important for the individual's growth, for the core of the team's growth, and ultimately for that team that is going to represent you at the, the next highest level, which would be that World Cup. Next up, at Leopard Puebla. If Conmebol and CONCACAF were combined, do you think U.S. soccer would qualify? If not, how many cycles do you think it will take uh, and then hmm. ends by saying hi from number one U.S. soccer fan in Mexico. Oh. Now, I actually replied to this person on Twitter. You did. And yeah, because I felt like to just say Comnebol and CONCACAF combining together, I need a little more context of what, how the format would work, how many spots. So the hypothetical I proposed to this person was, what if you just dropped the U.S. and Mexico into Comnebol and you made it 12 countries fighting for six spots, let's say. Got it. Okay. And I, I said I think the U.S. would be in the mix, but I would lean towards them just missing out. Uh, how do you view it? All right, well, first off, the fact that you want context on Twitter uh, scares me. This is Twitter. There is no context, so uh, you should understand that going forward at all times. Uh, okay, so, so for the 2018 World Cup, just to remind people out there, as you mentioned, there's 10 down in Comnable. 
Uh, Brazil qualified, Uruguay, Argentina, Colombia, and Peru. The teams that did not qualify, so the, the, the other five, were Chile, Paraguay, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Venezuela. So if you put Mexico and the United States in, and I know we are at a down point when it comes to the national team, but I would say if you're saying that you're adding another two qualification uh, spots, I think we would certainly compete against the likes of Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, Paraguay. And keep in mind, these are going to be home and away type of situations, just like anywhere else. I think we can compete against uh, Peru. And then it gets uh, then it gets much more difficult with the likes of Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, uh, Colombia. And look, I know everybody's going to be saying, yes, but we, we lost to this team. We lost to this team. Yeah, we could lose to every single team here. So I think it would be a fight to the finish if the United States and Mexico were in that. I think if they were to get a spot, it would be fighting for that last spot. You know, so they would. So now it would be the sixth and seventh spot of the twelve teams that are there. What do you think? Yeah, no, think I agree. I think I think they'd be right around battling for that last spot, and and I would lean towards them just missing out. But it wouldn't surprise me if they. But I will in. say this: if they were to get that last spot, they would then go to a World Cup armed with and much better armed with tools that would enable them to compete at a World Cup. Because at a World Cup, we know it's just one game type of scenarios on a neutral a neutral ground. So then if they were to get to the World Cup and were to face an Uruguay, an Argentina, Brazil, a Colombia, those types of teams, I would give them a much better chance having gone through that qualification process that we know is very, very difficult. But more importantly, having continually faced better opponents than they do when they're going through CONCACAF. All right, we'll end on this. At LFC underscore Salida, who are your top three center back partners if you had to pick from any current players? Okay, so so domestic, international? Let's say international. Just three center backs out there who you really like, who you kind of, oh, I wish I could have could play alongside that guy, you know, Sergio Ron, Ramos, uh, PK. I like Ron, I, lo- you know? I mean, look, Sergio Ramos, and I'm, I am old enough to know, uh, I, I watched Sergio Ramos play as a outside back for a number of years. And then his transition into being a center back has been has been wonderful. I, I love Sergio Ramos. I know he gets under people's skin, but that's what somebody does. You know, when it comes to a PK, I would love to have played next to him because I, I think it, it's hard though playing next to him because I'm, I'm much more in the physical mo- mode. And look, I'm not comparing myself to him, but I'm much more in the physical mode of, uh, of a PK in terms of not necessarily fleet of foot, certainly stature high winning balls in the air and that, and that kind of stuff. And, and he certainly would probably be much better with the ball at, at, at his feet. But if I'm next to somebody, I want somebody to be able to do the things that I can't do. So I'm going to need somebody that's got some speed and I'll deal with, you know, a lot of the balls in the air and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think you know, when we talk about a Sergio Ramos who can certainly uh, do that job. So th- those types of players, I mean, look, it, it, I don't think that there's any, give me some other names here that I'm, uh, that I'm forgetting that would, uh, that would jump out there. Yeah, Vincent company, Tiago Silva and guys like yeah, that. Vincent company. Yeah. Tiago Silva. I, I think they're, Vincent Company, we all know, I mean, if I were playing next to him, I know that I wouldn't be playing next to him next week because he would be out for a couple of weeks because that's <laughs> what he does and gets hurt. Tiago Silva, I think, is is good, but I think he's prone to those individual mistakes. I would rather have a lesser player than Tiago Silva, but one that I know week in and week out is going to do something. Because the, the, for any defender, what you want, and any for any coach for that matter, they want consistency. So if I'm playing next to somebody, I want to know... First off, I want to know their weaknesses, and that's okay because we all got them, regardless of even the best in the world have weaknesses. I need to understand that, and I need to have a confidence that week in and week out, you are going to be able to do the job 
and make those plays that I know you can, can make. Every once in a while, you'll make plays that you, I didn't think you would make. But what I don't want you to do is make incredible plays and then take plays off and make plays that I, I wanted you to make and I knew you could make and you couldn't. That's, that's what's valuable to me. So the consistency of some of the players that we have named, I think, is, uh, is crucial going forward. That is it. All right, so that has been our Ask Alexi segment. Once again, that hashtag Ask Alexi. Use it when we do either uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, the Periscope type of stuff. Always use it, and you never know. David Mossy might read one of your questions on future episodes of the State of the Union podcast. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, time for the Back Three, where we talk about some big stories, games, moments. Uh, Mossy, what do we got in our Back Three this week? All right. First up, we've talked a lot about this on our Bundesliga shows this season. We're going to talk about it here. The Christian Pulisic, Jaden Sancho dynamic. Sancho really emerging this season, frankly, kind of overshadowing Pulisic and now taking a lot of his minutes. Lucien Favre seems to view it as one or the other down that right flank. Uh, Are you bothered by this? Are you concerned? How do you view the whole Pulisic-Sancho situation? No, I'm never bothered by uh, the arrival of competition for a player that I like and certainly for an American national team player that is that is good because that only makes them better on a continual basis having to defend uh, their territory and their turf now to be fair to Christian Pulisic he has had a bunch of injuries I still think that Borussia Dortmund values him and I'm not talking just the value from money perspective which is very, very big right now, but I think they value him on uh, the field. And that Jaden Sancho is doing well and scoring goals, that's good. They got plenty of games going forward. What will be interesting is if he does start being a substitute rather than in that starting position, does it hasten his possible departure in a strange way? Maybe it lessens the amount of money that Borussia Dortmund can get because he's not necessarily a starter. But I still think that there's plenty of teams out there that recognize his value and maybe just look at it and say, hey, look, they have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to players that can play out wide. So I don't think it necessarily hurts his value in the way that other teams look at him and what he could possibly do with their team and maybe even it doesn't even necessarily affect his transfer fee value that much. So I, I, that's all to say that he has built up some cachet, both internally, I think, for the, for the, for the powers that be at Borussia Dortmund and externally in terms of how we view him. Yeah, I think they're both excellent. And if Dortmund are going to win the league, they're going to need contributions from both. And Pulisic uh, will get his games. I think they can play together. Dortmund's best performance last season was a home win over Leverkusen 4-0, where they started on opposite flanks and played beautifully together. The only thing I would say is you did want Pulisic to get to a point at Dortmund where when they have like a big, big game like they have coming up November 10th against Bayern, if he's fit, it's a given that he's going to start. And we're not really there. And now you've got a kid who's even younger than him starting ahead of him. So uh, I could see there being an issue there, U.S. fans being kind of disappointed at that. And again, the thing you come back to, two seasons ago, I was hosting the uh, radio show with Winalda, and I remember we talked a lot about Pulisic versus Dembele, and Eric argued that Pulisic was the better player and should be worth more, and actually the arguments he made in terms of why he liked Pulisic's game uh, were fair, and a lot of his criticisms of Dembele have kind of been borne out from his time in Barcelona, but the thing... I kept coming back to was Dembele was just so much more productive. He had like 20 assists in all competitions that season. His numbers dwarfed Pulisic's. 
and I feel like fast forward two seasons later, we're, we're there again because they've played about the same number of minutes this season, Pulisic and Sancho. Sancho has five goals and eight assists. Pulisic gets two goals, two assists. Jacob Brun Larson has better numbers than Pulisic right now, less minutes on the field. So we all love Pulisic's game. We think he's very good. But I, I do think, and Jovan Krovsky makes this point all the time on TV, it does need to translate a little bit more into production, more goals, assists. Like the stats haven't you really sort numbers. of— You want numbers. You want numbers from Exactly, yeah. I, I, I get that. But what it really comes down to is this. All right, so let's take, and I know that Bayern Munich has, has righted the ship a little bit, but they're still going to be looking. And oftentimes they look internally. When I say internally, internally within the league, they use it as their development <laughs> piece. <laughs> so if you're Bayern Munich and you can have one or the other, who do you go for? Sancho or Pulisic? If the money's the same, I'd probably yeah, yeah, yeah. sign. Yeah, I'd probably yeah. sign Sancho. I, I think he's the slightly because more the special talent. Yeah, but I think Pulisic would be a great fit there and would do very well. Like again, I'm not. I'm not down on Pulisic. I think he's an amazing talent as well. And but, if, but if, wait, so but five months ago or six months ago, it would be different, right? Mm, towards the end of last season, I was already kind of shifting really? to the Sancho camp. I was really impressed by what is. I'm a big, big fan of his. You're so anti. I, I will You're say so anti-American. <laughs> I will say though, in terms of Dortmund winning the league, I was really bothered by that Hertha Berlin result. That old flakiness started to creep yeah, back, yeah. and that's something that Lucien Favre has to cut out. If they're leading a game late at home and they've been the better team throughout, you got to close the door and not allow like stoppage time equalizer and drop points there. So, well, let me just play that game one more time, and I know we did it with Bayern Munich. Is it just specific to Bayern Munich that you would make that choice, or Let's say you, you were talking with uh, Winalda about a potential move. So what if what if Barcelona was looking at the two players? I think a team that plays more vertically, Pulisic is more drink, explosive. By the way, drink. Anytime you say words that we just we <laughs> play vertically. Okay. Yeah, I think Pulisic <laughs> might be the more explosive of the two in terms of running at defenders. So maybe he's a better fit in that scenario, while a little bit more of a possession team, Sancho is, is a better fit there. But I'm splitting hairs. Like, they're both great, and they would both do well, I think, anywhere so wait, they go. So who, who but did I, you say? I, but I, I think, I, I, I guess I think Sancho is the slightly greater talent there, so I, I lean Sancho. Again, God, why do you hate America <laughs> so much? What is your problem? Yeah, it's become a, a funny dynamic on the air, because you've got Kate Abdo and Warren Barton know, that are right? clearly in the Sancho camp, you uh, sticking up for the American Christian Pulitzer. So, yeah. they're, they're, folks, there's so much tension there behind the scenes over this whole Pulisic Sancho thing. Oh, it's, uh... boy. Don't even start. Don't even start. <laughs> uh, okay, what else? All right. Next up, last week it was revealed that Tata Martino at the end of this MLS season will leave Atlanta United and take over Mexico. He succeeds Juan Carlos Osorio. A lot of different ways we can go here, but l let me start here. This whole business of coaches announcing their next job when they're still in the midst of their current one. Uh, we deal with this a lot in yep. the Bundesliga. We have this bizarre situation right now with Julian Nagelsmann that we both think it's is ridiculous. ridiculous. Yep. Uh, we just talked about Lopetegui and what happened this summer with Spain and Real Madrid. And here we have Tata Martino uh, heading into decision day, going into the playoffs, revealing that he's leaving uh, to take over Mexico. Do you have a problem with it? And do you think it could have an adverse effect on Atlanta United? Well, we already saw that in what amounted to a must-win game in terms of winning a trophy, because ultimately this is about winning. We've talked about that before. And while he has done some wonderful things for Atlanta, and I think he has given them a template, they haven't won anything yet. And on the last day of the season, when they a regular season, when they had an opportunity to win the Supporters' Shield and have a trophy, uh, they, didn't, they didn't show up, and Toronto wiped them off the field. I don't necessarily have a problem. I mean, this was kind of rumored and this was talked about. And this is this is not a a year from now I'm taking a job or anything like that. This would, I mean, look if they don't if they don't make it through this next round of play, uh, playoffs, then in a week he could he could be off to to, to doing this. Uh, they're going to pay him a boatload of money. He obviously 
wanted and was looking for something else. And it doesn't mean that he didn't value and respect what he had. And he had a great gig. My goodness, the Atlanta gig and what he was to Atlanta, and still is because it's still in the middle of the playoffs. I get that. Uh, he, I think he recognized that this was good. But I also think he has aspirations, as we all do, to, to do some different things and maybe wanted a, a new challenge. Maybe he thought, look, I've, I've taken this as far as I can. I'm handing it off in good shape and wanted to do, uh, to do something else. As I said, I think they're going to pay him a whole lot. It's also different. You know, we talk so much about language and, and culture. And Tata, uh, while he may have understood English, did not speak it and certainly didn't speak it on a regular basis. And that's part of the reason uh, why he may or may not have been considered for the U.S. men's national team, given the, uh, the recommendations and the qualifications that Ernie Stewart has laid out. Obviously, this is a Spanish-speaking culture and country. This is one that is notorious from a, from a uh, media standpoint of sharpening their knives even before you're even hired. So they got knives ready for whoever. It's like, oh, Martino's coming in? All right, I'm pulling out my Martino knives. But that's, that's you know that, you know that going in. Uh, and this is also a federation that is notorious for firing people. So while it might be a high-paying contract and a long-term contract, there is nothing long-term when it comes to the Mexican Soccer Federation. Uh, it will be fun to be facing a Mexico team with Tata now at the helm. I got a feeling that the way that we look at Tata now in the context of MLS and Atlanta, it will be very, very different. Not not because it's our, it's our major rival, but I, I just think that he, he and his image, I think, will be changed. Um, maybe, maybe for the, maybe for the better, maybe for, maybe for the worse. But I just think it's going to be a very, very different way that we look at Tata when this, this machine starts to happen. I was going to ask you about U.S. soccer because Jason Davis, who's this nice fellow who uh, hosts a show on Sirius XM. Yes, I know him well. FC. Uh, he sent out a tweet last week saying that it was bad optics for U.S. soccer for them to not interview Tata and then have Mexico hire him. You, Tony Miola, and Keith Costigan all jumped down his throat over that tweet. And, and yeah, I don't like the use of the word optics there. I mean, you, you hire who you think is the right coach. Who cares how it looks? But I do think there's a point to be made somewhere in there. U.S. soccer decided, as you mentioned, that a uh, requirement to coach the U.S. national team is you had to speak fluent English, and that requirement eliminated Tata Martino from consideration. People were already debating whether that was correct or not, and I think it's an interesting debate with fair arguments on both sides. Some people think, you know, language of football, a good coach can get his points across. They point examples of managers who succeeded in countries without speaking the native tongue. Others, I think, like you argue, no, it's a benefit to be able to communicate comfortably with your players and the media and all it's that. efficient, too. Yes. In, in, a, in, a, in a place, in a, in a situation where you don't have a lot of time with So players. that was, it was already a debate, and Tata was the guy people were bringing up. Boy, you have this coach doing great in MLS who checks off all the other boxes, and you're not even going to interview him, and, and, and now your arch rival hires him. Does that sort of intensify that debate, shine even more of a spotlight on it, and put even more pressure on U.S. soccer over this decision? If, if Greg Berhalter or whoever ends up being the U.S. coach struggles and Tata Martino does well, are they going to get hit over the head with this thing, you know? Yeah, but then you're just doing it just for, <laughs> just to do it, just so you say, well, I did it. And that's a waste of time and effort and resources. And I, I, don't, I don't want that. Ernie Stewart, hire who you think is best. Okay, we're going to scream and yell from the outside. Ernie's not going to listen to it or care ultimately. Hire who you think is best. And if you have one person, I, I, that's not the way that I would do it. And optics-wise, maybe it doesn't look good, but your job is to get the person that you think is going to be successful, that is going to bring this team back to the World Cup that they missed out on in uh, this summer in Russia. That's, that's all your job is. And I don't think that Tata going to Mexico is, makes, it, makes it look worse or makes it look 
it makes it look that much that much worse than it already is to be <laughs> to be quite honest. But it's going to be fun to see to, to see what Tata looks like as the head coach of Mexico. I mean, this monster has taken down others <laughs> of, of great stature when it comes to coaching Mexico. I, tell you, I do think it's a good hire, though. You know, Mexico. It's all about getting to that fifth game. He did take Paraguay to the World Cup quarterfinals in 2010. And by the way, they lost 1-0 to Spain, a game where they got completely screwed by the refs. They had a goal wrongly disallowed. Uh, Spain got a very dodgy penalty for their goal. So, yeah, I think— and he's got a lot to work with. He's got it's a lot a, to a work team, with. a lot of young I, players. I can't wait to see what he's going to do with Lozano yep. and Corona. Herrera, all three of those guys scored in the Champions League last week. We're going to talk about the Champions League in a minute. Eric Gutierrez I love. So he's got a lot of talent to work with, and I think he, he'll do well there. All right. Uh, what else? All right, we'll end on this. We're at the midway point of the Champions League group stage, so yes. our producer Alex Dowd felt it would be appropriate to do a little sort of overview of what's gone on so far. Okay. The biggest story for me is the fact that there is a very real possibility PSG are going to be eliminated in the group stage, uh, which for that club would be just a catastrophe, but not all that surprising to me. I mean, that is a poorly constructed team this season. They have a hard time winning the ball back because their front players don't press much. They don't really have a holding midfielder. You saw in that Napoli game, match day three, man, in the first half, Napoli knocked it around for what seemed like an eternity at times, and PSG couldn't win the ball back. Now, I thought Neymar was very good in that game. Obviously, I think Mbappe is brilliant, so it's really become a struggle of, can those two guys do enough brilliant things over the course of a game to sort of override all the other issues? But I don't know. I mean, their next two games are away to Napoli and home to Liverpool. I'm not confident about them winning either of those games. Games. Boy, PSG crashing out Oof. in the group stage. How big a that, story would that, that be? Would be? That would be bad. And why is it bad? Because of the incredible talent that they have on that team, because of the incredible money that they spend on that team, and because of the aspirational aspect of this team over the last years in terms of what the ownership has demanded. And once again, Ligue 1 is training, training exercises for them for the most part. So yeah, that would be a huge failure. The only other one that that, that pops out at me right now is Spurs on one on one point uh, with Inter on six and Barcelona on nine. And I don't know, did you see the uh, the Spurs game? We're recording this on Tuesday. Once again, apologies. Uh, we had some production stuff moved around. So this is coming a day late, but it happens. It's okay. You're going to, don't, don't worry, you'll get your fix. It's going to be all, it's going to be oh, all no. good. What happened is our former producer, Francis Silva, got <laughs> married this week and did not invite you or I to the wedding, but invited our remaining producer, Alex Dowd, who attended and that disrupted <laughs> his whole schedule. Well, you so, know what? If we're going to have to push it back for a day, we're, I, I'm okay doing it because because of love, because ultimately, despite my, my criticisms at times and my negative image, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Alex, was it a good wedding? Thumbs up or down? Thumbs Boy, up. Thumbs down from Alex. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but did you see the uh, Spurs game at Wembley with the NFL lines? It warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to see that. It made me so happy just to see that and the the jarring effect that it had on people when they turned on their television. Stu Holden of Turner Sports had a uh, <laughs> had a great tweet. He said uh, during that game, he said, "I think Manchester City have been better in the red zone." <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It reminded me of, of MLS uh, 1.0, 2.0. Oh God, it was. But yeah, to, to your point, so Spurs good. are in big trouble. They're gonna. It looks like they're gonna they're gonna crash out on the group stage. Uh, which again, Mauricio Pochettino, we get we. You know, very good manager, but at some point, does he need to, you know, win something or at least, you know, make something happen a little bit more I in Europe? Does. Than he does. I mean, I think Spurs is is well, they're Spursy. We understand that, but at some point, he's got to do it. I think there's a general belief and acceptance acceptance that he is doing good things, and yet if you can't point to 
the you know the, the trophies or being in, at least involved in those trophies, then it, it gets it gets old. Yeah, Italian teams doing well. Uh, there's a good chance all four are going to advance to the knockout stage. I would say right now the two teams that have emerged for me as the favorites to win the whole thing are Barcelona and Juventus. Barcelona have kind of stumbled upon the right lineup here with Artur in the midfield. Coutinho is part of that front three. The way they were able to dominate Inter even without Messi was impressive, and they dominated the first half against Real Madrid. Like I said, not so good in the second half. And then Juventus, I was very impressed uh, against Manchester United, especially the first half. They had like 70% possession. I know you texted me about Dybala. He's a player you really like. So with him and Ronaldo, they have two match winners there up front and then they're very good at the back. So Juventus looking good, right? Yeah, Juventus is looking really good. I mean, that Dybala, every time you see him play, you just say, how, how can this guy not be on the field? Well, the reason is because there's somebody who's better and... <laughs> <laughs> and evidently, they can't play together yeah. uh, on the field. Um, All right. I would say honorable mentions. Let me just say Manchester sure. City and Liverpool, I think, are looking like strong contenders, too. I'm not sure what to make of Bayern. But one caveat to this whole thing, uh, we're talking about these teams as they're presently constituted. Remember, UEFA did away with the cup-tied rules, so we could see a crazier January than usual. And some of these clubs like PSG, Real Madrid, if they can just get through the group stage, they might be able to make like a big signing in January and change the whole complexion of how you view them. So let, let's, let's keep an eye on that. So, um, so now players that played in the group stage for one team, if okay. they do a, 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 a January yeah. transfer can just continue on to play. Exactly. So you could be knocked out. You have a team that you're, you play for was knocked out and then still win Champions League. Yeah, and the rule wasn't that way, which is why when Barcelona signed Coutinho right. last January, right. he wasn't able to play in the Champions League. That uh, Signing like that this January, the guy would be able to play. Um, so All know. right. Well, next round of uh, Champions League is what, November 6th-ish? I think uh, beginning, beginning of November, first week of November, right? I think that's uh, when uh, that happens. All right. Yep. Uh, well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll see if PSG can get it together. But oof, that that will be <laughs> that will not that will not be good. Anything else? Yeah, this will be my last comment of this podcast. Okay, thank God. You and I have both finished season two of Making a Murder. We are <laughs> dying to talk about it. You and I both love these true crime documentaries. Yes, we do. But our producer Alex Dowd has said, "Hold off another week because people." Might not have finished yet, but folks, if you're listening at home, you have one more week to finish this because <laughs> next week we are diving into this. I have all sorts of theories, and uh, so you better be I all was, caught up. Yeah, we were talking about it earlier. So for those that, that, that very few out there, there can't be that many that don't know, it's a uh, uh, a documentary, multiple uh, series, so it's multiple parts, 10 parts in each now that we have season two. The first season was a blockbuster. Everybody was talking about it, uh, and you follow along the uh, case. And then the second one has just come out with another 10 episodes following up on what's going on so i'm i'm knee deep binging this thing right because i can't i can't get enough and i i, I can't quit you you know <laughs> and i'm knee deep in this in episode i don't know seven or eight and my wife walks up and, and starts watching this and now you know what's coming so now she starts asking questions and i was like for the love of God, no, we cannot do this. You have to go back and watch the beginning, okay? I'm not explaining to you in episode eight of the uh, two series. So, all right, so you have one more week before we can discuss uh, some, some different things when it comes to making a murder. I will say that this week I'm so obsessed with it that I downloaded and started listening to a podcast called, um, uh, what's it called? 
You said refuting refuting murder? a murderer or something yeah. like that or uh, something something like that on uh, uh, on iTunes, which takes every episode and does a companion piece that refutes every uh, one of the uh, not everyone, but refutes a lot of the stuff that they they assert. So anyway, this is what we do with our lives now in 2018, along with Twitter. Congratulations, Masi, on discovering the uh, the mute button on Twitter. I think your life is going to be uh, completely different, and a whole world will open up to you in terms of what you let in and what you keep out, which is very very important in uh, in Twitter and when it comes to life. My big thing, we always end our podcast with my big thing, and it goes back to something that, that we talked about in the State of the Union, and that is uh, the responsibility that athletes have. Sometimes we talk about athletes and we have expectations and we, we, we hold them responsible for things that in normal everyday life, we wouldn't hold anybody responsible for. That's part of the opportunity and part of the privilege of being a professional, in this case it would be soccer player or, or anything. There are expectations and with that comes incredible rewards on and off the field in terms of what you do, in terms of what you're paid, in terms of the access that you get, in terms of those opportunities um, uh, that, sh that you are f uh, afforded. As I said earlier in the podcast, I do believe that athletes have a responsibility when it comes to promoting the team, promoting, in this case, it would be a league, and using uh, the media at times to promote themselves. And when you have somebody like Zlatan who has gone out of his way to build this incredible brand, and more power to him, I have incredible respect for the way that he has used that tool that is the media, and at times even manipulated it. I'm, we're here to be spun. We're here to be manipulated. And I will forever be a Zlatan fan because of the things that he does. But when in the most important point uh, and in the post, uh, most important moment, when things aren't going well, and you have set yourself up as the savior, when you have set yourself up as this leader, when you shy away from it, it's, it's not a good look. And I know we talked about optics also earlier on. And not being a good look, is that a reason to do something? Not necessarily. Sometimes, who cares what anybody else thinks? And by the way, in this case, Zlatan doesn't care what, we're th what, what we think. Maybe. He might be listening. And if he is, hello there and come on on. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. You can yell and scream at me. Uh, you can roar at me, uh, as it were, if, uh, if you are the lion that you, uh, that, that, you, uh, that you say you are and you tell us that you are. Zlatan's going to go on and he's going to be fine. I just thought it was difficult and I kind of wanted to see and hear his reaction in that moment when things don't go well. And it comes back to what we've talked about often. When we have these big names, these big stars that come to Major League Soccer, or, or any league for that matter, when they are coming to Major League Soccer, they are coming to a league that we know has manufactured Perry. And for the first time, Zlatan was playing for a team that wasn't the best. And that can be jarring. And that can be a hell of a transition. I think he did a really good job of making that transition and understanding that this is, you're, you're, you're not in Kansas anymore. Well, you are if you're playing Sporting KC, but in this case, you're not in Kansas for the most part. And it's fascinating to see these players adjust. Some of them take longer. Some of them don't adjust at all. But all of this is part of that adjustment uh, and part ultimately what you hope of an appreciation for what is happening here. And I do think someone like Zlatan will have a newfound respect and appreciation. Doesn't mean he's not gonna complain and criticize different things that we do, but he will have gone now through, what is it, two, a half or almost three quarters of a year in a situation that he has never experienced before. Uh, and that's a good thing. 
And I look forward, and I do hope that he is back next year for the Los Angeles Galaxy, or I guess any team in MLS, because I think he ultimately makes the teams better, he makes this league better. And that is what we want. We want players, whether they're huge names, whether they're making a lot of money or anybody, to come into the league and, and make these teams and make these games meaningful where we want to watch it. And that's what he does on a continual basis for the things that he does on the field and for the things that he does off the field. And it doesn't mean we can't criticize him. It doesn't mean we can't take them to task for making different decisions on and off the field, as we will continue to do. But ultimately, thank you, Zlatan, for making this year much more interesting than it would have been without you. And I hope we have more years uh, going forward. All right. Anything uh, before we go, Obasi? I know you said it was your last uh, comment, but is that it? The making of the murder uh, of, uh, of a murder is your last take, or do you have anything else? That's it. That's it. All right. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, on Periscope. Remember to use that Ask Alexi hashtag. We'll be back again next week. Once again, apologies for the uh, delay this week. As Masi explained to you, uh, there were circumstances beyond our control. Best wishes and congratulations to Frances and her, uh, her new husband. Hopefully, uh, they have a long and healthy and happy life together. And we've talked about how important Frances was to this, uh, this endeavor that we call the State of the Union podcast. All right. See you next week. Size the day.